Welcome to Beyond. We have a very special guest today, Dr. Gwen Feinstone. She's the president of California Southern University, and we're really excited to have you on the show. You have a very amazing journey as I read your background and what you've been involved with your whole career. I know you come with, I think, two masters and a doctorate, so you're a classic underachiever. Thank you. Thank you. <laughs> um, but, you know, you're really doing some really important work um, for not only the community today, but uh, marriage and family counseling, grief and loss. I mean, that's something every, that's a universal thing that everybody relates to. So you've really picked a, a career path that really, I think, requires a very strong person emotionally to be able to take on that from others, um, but also to give really sage advice. So before we jump into that, how would you describe to people what exactly it is you do? People think that being a therapist means you just sit there and listen. And so they're probably the number one objection to therapy is I can talk to my friends for free. I don't need to pay somebody to listen to me. Right. Okay. A therapist is a trained listener. A therapist is someone who ideally has gone to school for many years, has learned different theories of how to do therapy. They understand human psychology, what's going on in at certain developmental places in life. They understand so many things about the mind and the mind-body connection if they're interested in that sort of thing. And I was always very interested in that whole mind-body connection where the spirit fit in. So all of that you take together and when you listen to someone, you're listening not just for what they're saying but for what they're not saying. You're looking for patterns. You're looking for the way things have unfolded in their life because you have perspective the person doesn't have. The person's there at the back of the herd essentially. Their view doesn't change. Their life remains what it is until they have an opportunity with the help of a therapist to step up on a boulder maybe and look over the herd, step up on a boulder and see themselves differently and understand the ways in which they get in their own way, mm -hmm. perhaps allow others to get in their own way, the ways in which their stories have shaped them, the ways in which their stories have controlled their lives. When you say story, is this the narrative they gave themselves as a result of their experiences? Or when you say story, what does that mean exactly? Life story, essentially. Okay. I, I, I make a, there's a, probably a somewhat of a distinction between life story and narrative. I would say those things that happen that unfold your life story, what you make of them, mm -hmm. that's your narrative. And whichever one is the most powerful is probably the one that's going to send you into therapy. Because what's the meaning of what happened to you? It isn't enough that it happened, it had meaning. So yes, it was traumatic, yes, it was painful, yes, it was frightening. But what did it mean to you? For some one person, it might not mean as much. For another, it means the world, and it changes everything for them. So how they see their own story, how they see their own life, how they see themselves in their life, all that comes out in therapy with a good therapist. I always tell people that, you know, when you have challenges in life, change the roadmap. It's like in Fallujah, in Iraq, they, you know, the Americans went in there, they got slaughtered. Mm -hmm. So the idea that you just keep going back and expecting a different outcome. So sometimes you got to change the roadmap. And then I always tell people, why do you give it the meaning you give it? Who says it means that? It could mean an 180 polar opposite of what you think it means. I think that's very powerful what you said because for me, when I think I give things meaning based on my roadmaps and how I've been raised and what my expectations were, that's where I think stress and anxiety come in. But when I change the meaning and I'm open to what it could be or where it's going to flow to, then I notice it sort of morphs into something else. That makes sense. And in order to do that, you have to be sufficiently removed from the pain of your story to be able to see it with some objectivity and recognize that you just might have some authority over your own life. Right. The person who's still in the middle of it doesn't think they have any authority over their own life. They're just being battered back and forth. Now they're just enough removed. Maybe they've had a little help. There's someone who believed in them. Mm -hmm. Maybe they have more resilience than the person next to them. That's something that's sort of inborn and can be encouraged. Whatever the reasons are, they see it a little differently and they can make a different set of choices. 
it's very important to have someone who believes in you. That makes a huge difference in a person's yeah, life. Absolutely. How, how, how impactful is a um, sort of a um, growth mindset versus a victim perspective? I, I've, I've come across people who have a sort of a victim mindset that they're a victim of everything that happens. And then I've met people that work through that and then they have this growth mindset spurt where it's like, you know what, I own the outcome, I own how I look at things, and I choose a certain way or approach to thinking about it. Or do I oversimplify it? You know, I always say if people could just make up their minds to change, I'd be out of business. It's not that easy. Something has to happen. Is it a good therapist? Is it a good clergy person? Is it a friend who maybe says something? Did you read a book? Hmm. What, what helped you? What happened that made you be able to change that? So you could go from being victim to survivor to thriver. Right. It's a choice. It can With be a choice. With some therapy and some help. Exactly. Some guidance and some perspective. So as I read about your background, at a young age, you experienced all levels of poverty. You said spiritual, emotional, financial. Um, how did your early experiences shape your drive professionally to become the person you are or to get involved in, in uh, therapy, sort of the therapeutic side? I went off to school, went off to college to be a teacher because that's how I wanted to help children. Hmm. I wanted to be a teacher. There were no teaching jobs available in the state of California, sort of side note. And so I be went into therapy instead and finished my degrees as a psychotherapist. Now, how did I get there? It was going to be teaching or therapy, one or the other. Why? Because it was a way to make a difference in the lives of others. So my experiences as a kid, I adored my teachers. They believed in me. School was the place that I could go to where someone believed in me, someone saw my potential, someone saw my intelligence, would take me under their wing. The classroom teachers loved me. I was that quiet kid who sat in the front row and got everything right. And so they would give me more time and attention. I learned to love school. It was my escape. So for me, education was always important. I figured out very early, if I was going to change my life, I would have to have an excellent education. That was the key. Mm -hmm. That was my road to success. Success wasn't money. Success was a level of contentment and satisfaction, maybe just enough money in the bank to pay the bills. Success meant that I was removed from that life and in charge of my own life. And mm -hmm. teachers gave me that belief in myself. Not all of them, but the majority of them. And because of that, I was able to then explore. I was able to, I was a phenomenal reader, constantly reading, always reading. So books, I credit the library with saving my life. 10 cents, I got a library card and I lived in the library, another safe place I could go and be. And I could learn about people and I could learn about the world and see worlds that I had never seen and never thought I would possibly see. And all of that added up to education, go to college. And then I was fortunate enough to grow up in an experienced, and experience a youth school district that very much encouraged girls to go to school. Mm, okay, I am 65 now, so do the math, in 1954, by the time I'm 10 years old, it's 1964. Girls are still not greatly encouraged to go to college, mm -hmm. but by the time I went to high school, all of our instructors were saying, you have to go to college, you're smart, go to college. Well, what does a poor kid do? How do they go to college? I worked my butt off. I got scholarships, so I could go to college. What gave you that drive? Is, is your parents that, you know, I have three kids and sometimes I rack my brain, right? It's like, how do you get these kids to get the big picture? Was that part your parents giving you that drive or is it just like you realized in school you got the feedback, it was positive, you knew education was important, so no matter what it took, you're gonna make that happen or did you have some of that guidance in the home? No, there was none of that at home. Neither of my parents were educated, nor did they see a value in a girl having an education. Their expectation for me 
was that I would get A's in school because I could. And then I would graduate from high school. I would get a good job as a secretary. A good job meant I didn't work in a factory. So if I got a good job as a secretary, I would have air conditioning in the summer, heat in the winter, coffee. It would be a nice, clean job, and I could be, you know, have some respect for that. Mm -hmm. And then I would meet a nice man. And probably by the time I was 20, I would be married. And at 21, I'd give them their first grandchild. They had it all mapped out. They knew precisely where I was supposed to be. Somewhere along the line, around 15, I went, that's not that's the so life I want, thank you. <laughs> yeah. And began to focus on my own education. Was there some friction in the house because of that? If you consider screaming fights friction, yeah. Wow. I was determined. So at a young age, you really had some fortitude, some strength. Because, you know, parents are pretty pivotal and they can speak into kids' lives in a positive or negative way. But that's, that's really impressive that you had that intestinal fortitude at a young age to say, this is my path. Because what I was saying earlier, you know, people have roadmaps given them by parents mm -hmm. and you break that roadmap and you get all kinds of hell, mm -hmm. you know, from the family unit, right? Mm -hmm. It's like you're not following our roadmap. And uh, I've seen that in my own family. And so it takes a lot of, a lot of strength to, to walk through that. I had probably more than my fair serving of defiance. Defiance was how I got through my childhood. Mm -hmm. Because if you look at it carefully, there's integrity in defiance. Mm -hmm. Okay. I'm standing right? up for me. Right. So while it, people around you may not love the way you're doing it, it is a child standing up for him or herself. So I had more than my fair share of defiance. I was determined and, and I was stubborn. Now you take that same personality quality and you turn it into a positive strain and then it becomes perseverance. It can become determination. It can become good things that move you forward. And I had just enough teachers who could help me get past the defiance into the perseverance <laughs> that then I could say, wait a minute, there's something else out there. That is awesome. That's, re that's a really amazing story. Um, so at a young age, what was your relationship to suffering? How did you, how did that sort of impact your formative? I think you sort of touched on it. Sounds like it was somewhat of a challenge at home based on their vision for your life. But, um, you know, because right now you're dealing with people that suffer and that have had big challenges. So there must have been some connection to suffering and that drove a desire to, to help. Suffering and hurting aren't the same thing. So when we're grieving over the loss of someone, mm -hmm. the crying, the moaning, the needing, the wanting, even the yearning, that is all considered fairly typical grief no matter how painful it is. The suffering is that extra element, that extra dimension. And I did not suffer as a child, at least not in the way that I would understand what suffering meant after I lost my husband. When my husband died, then I knew what suffering was. But as a kid, growing up, I didn't know any better. I just knew that life was uncertain and scary. I just knew that left on my own, horrible things happened because I was left with this person who was abusive. I knew what my life looked like and I had to figure out how to navigate that life. I didn't suffer because I didn't, I didn't understand that there was anything else. Mm -hmm. And everybody else is going through the same thing, right? Isn't everybody else going through the same thing? Doesn't their stepfather take their clothes off and abuse their body for his satisfaction? Doesn't their stepfather shove his penis in their mouth? That's what life was like as a child. Is there enough food on the table? No, there's not enough food on the table. Isn't that what everybody else is going through? Hmm. If I'm being beaten with a, with a belt and then sexually abused, isn't that what everybody else is going through? So no, I didn't suffer as a kid. I didn't know what suffering was. I didn't know what suffering was until, like I said, I lost my husband. And that was a whole different 
a whole different um, realm, a whole different dimension of, of grief. Mm -hmm. As a kid, all I knew was that life was awful and I wanted it to be better. And I couldn't wait to be 18 and I could move out and I could have my own money and I could make my own life and they could all go pound sand. Absolutely. And that stepdad should be somewhere else. That's very, uh, that's very upsetting. Uh, wow. That, <laughs> um, to, you know, did, uh, so was there a spiritual dimension for you that something beyond the present, the, the experience you're going through that gave you that hope, that gave you that, that confidence? Absolutely. Absolutely. I maintain that my soul talked to me even as a young child. Mm -hmm. It's what led me through the darkness. It's what led me through the pain. My soul talked to me. My soul said, come on, you can do it. Let's do it. It, if I listened to my inner self, pick your language. Pick the word that makes the most sense to you. If it's God talking to you, if it's your inner voice, whatever it is, mm -hmm. if I listened to that, it helped me walk the path that was best for me. It got me where I needed to be so then I could be someplace else. So yes, as a child, I had many a spiritual moment that led me to understand the universe was bigger than I was and it wasn't supposed to be that way, you see. I, we weren't supposed to be hurt and abused like that. Mm -mm. I understood that at a point in time. Maybe around 10, I understood it. And that's when I stood up to him. And that's when I put my foot down and said, this, we're done. This is it. Absolutely. Don't, don't put another hand on me. Yeah. Wow. Sorry about that. That's, that's powerful. I have, I have three kids and a daughter, so I know what I would do. Had anybody done that to my kids, so I, I appreciate you sharing that. So one of the things I read about you, you said you mentioned that um, there's passion. Uh, your passion is, is the potential mm -hmm. that perhaps lies in others, as you saw what you went through, mm -hmm. um, specifically the passion of, or potential of other people. So reflecting back, what's an experience that you lived through that sparked this insight? Was that part of what you were saying, um, that whole journey where you said, you know, if people went through what I went through, they have no idea what they're capable of in a positive way. Maybe they're still put down and beat down, whatever. Is that sort of where that came from? I think early on, because the voices that talked to me, and it sounds like I'm schizophrenic, but the spiritual world that talked to me, I understood that I was more than the sum of my experiences. Mm. And I had teachers who believed in my potential. Teachers who would take me aside and say, I want to give you this extra assignment because you can do it. They gave me encouragement. They use the word potential all the time. You have potential. And I went, wow, I have potential. This is pretty cool. You look it up, what's potential? All right, I got some of that, yes. And I began to exercise that. And it did become my passion because I think that most of us don't really recognize our potential. We're probably none of us truly manifest it. Mm -hmm. But certainly when you're growing up under that cloud, when you're growing up under that wool blanket, that heavy, wet wool blanket of abuse, you don't see the world outside and you don't see your place in it. You only see your place under the wool blanket. So as a therapist, I was in a position to help people find their potential. That's what I do. People ask me why I'm a therapist. And when I work with grad students who are doing their personal therapy, I'll ask them, why do you want to be a therapist? And they almost always say, because I want to help people. So well, become clergy, become a social worker. Why do you want to be a therapist? For me, it was the best way to help people find their potential because I help them get out of their own way. Mm -hmm. So that was a natural for me, just like teaching was helping children find their potential. And when we're talking about working with death and dying and people who are in the final stages of life, mm -hmm. what potential are we talking about there? Oh my God, the potential is enormous. 
for peace, for acceptance, for a kind of reunification with your own life and your own story, to work through those things that are causing you such pain that you can't die peacefully, there's still potential up until the minute you die, the potential to reach out to the people around you and become more connected to them, to maybe make peace with them, and then you move over into that next plane, that next world, whatever you believe happens, that's what happens next. And I was a part of making that happen. I manifest my own potential. I've learned as much from my patients as they've learned from me, and particularly the dying ones. Yeah. Particularly the dying ones. You know, as I sit here and I look at what an amazing woman you are, what you've become, what you've accomplished, it's really the greatest pain that gave you the greatest joy as a result of that experience and gave you the greatest connectivity and and sort of ability to be empathetic and to be real with people because I've just met you and you're so real and you know sometimes in Orange County especially you meet a lot of people that are very glossy and fake and phony and it's eight and a half by ten and it's looking good feeling good and having the goods well, while that has its place at some level but the idea that to be authentic and to be real um, whatever you believe in whether it's God or not that experience was put in your life for a very powerful reason because I'm sure you've had such an impact on so many people along the way. So to me, I just sit here and say, wow, that's, that's insane. Like, it's all relativity, right? You, the blanket's all relative to when you realize you pull the blanket off and you see this and mm -hmm. you realize you had a really uh, distorted, conflicted person in your life as a stepdad. So, so what is the biggest misconception people have of a therapist? That you just sit there and listen. They're just paying you to sit there and listen. And you're doing so much more than that. The, the experience inside, the activity that's going on inside of the therapist, if they're doing their job well, what they're listening for, what they're planning, the detail they put away so that they can come back with it in literally two or three years and say, now you remember the, now that story you're telling me right now? That sounds just like the one that happened with your Uncle Harold, and boom, lights start going on. Yeah. And, the, and my, my patients say to me, how do you remember what happened to my Uncle Harold? Because you told me three years ago, that's my job to help you understand your life and see your life. So I think the, the major misconception is that you just sit there and talk and somebody listens to you. There's so much more than that going on. Yeah, and you know, honestly, it's probably hard to find a really awesome therapist that can connect the dots for everybody. I'm sure there's a lot of great ones out there, but I think it's sort of like, uh, uh, I'm in a business, a medical device business, where there's uh, migraine sufferers, and they'll go from doctor to doctor to doctor trying to get a pharmacological solution or at least management to the problem. Mm -hmm. And, um, and sort of find someone you can trust mm -hmm. and that can help you uncork whatever's mm -hmm. going on is, is, is very valuable. What was interesting though, you said in, in Finding Jens, but by the way, this is the amazing book she wrote and we'll talk about this in a second, um, Finding the Gems. And you wrote this because in part, it was for those who won't go to therapy. So I, again, my question is, what's the perception people have of therapists? Then why won't they go? Is it a stigma? Is it related to mental health stigma? I mean, what is it that people look at and say, eh, not for me? The people who won't go to therapy fall into a few categories. Those who have tried it, didn't get any value out of it, can't figure out why they'd want to do it again. Perhaps those who can't afford it or can't figure out how to afford it, mm -hmm. but they think maybe that'd be good, but they can't quite get the money together. And then there are those who are quite certain that therapy is, a, is for people who are absolutely sick, mental health issues, and that sort of thing. And, but they'll read a book. They'll read a book, and they'll read a self-help book. Because it's safe and it's private. and Exactly, and they'll read a book, and maybe the book makes a difference. And so that's all I wanted to accomplish with the book, was for those people who won't go to therapy, maybe they'll read a book, and it'll make a difference. And for those who do and will go to therapy, well, this is an enhancement. It's another way of looking at your own life story. I can't treat everyone. 
I can't reach more than a few people in a day, several people in a week, but a book can reach tens of thousands of people and make a difference. Absolutely. And someone picks it up, maybe they're, maybe it's not for the therapy they pick it up, they pick it up because it has a spiritual message and they're mm -hmm. seekers and they're mm -hmm. looking for some answers. I don't pretend to have answers, I have more questions, but maybe my question's your question and it leads you to your answer. I love it. So how many, statistically, I don't know if this is out there, mm -hmm. how many people in the U.S. or worldwide suffer from some sort of mental issue, mental illness? That's an excellent question and I don't have an answer. I think most people. Because well, if you're human, those, you've been through stuff. Well, and that you that is tech, with it, yeah. Well, if you open up the DSM five, yeah, everything's in there, and so I'm I'm a little reluctant to call everything a mental illness, <laughs> but um, to your point. Well, the older I get, I will say that uh, that thought has crossed my mind. That you know, maybe mm -hmm. it's uh, it's mm -hmm. approaching higher than ninety nine percent. So tell us about this book. Um, tell us more about this book, Finding the Gems. It is my story. Um, but I use myself as a tool. I use myself as the vehicle for not only my own growth, but when I'm working with people in therapy. It is my spiritual journey as well. And I begin the book by, with an introduction that says essentially, look for yourself in here, look for the questions in here, use this as a tool for you. I don't have any truths. I don't have any pearls of wisdom. But I can tell you that if you're willing to do the hard work, your life can work for you in beautiful ways. And if you're willing to ask yourself the hard questions, you can take some of those river rocks. And that's what that picture is on the front page. Those are just simple black river rocks covered with mud and algae. And you can turn them into gems. Your life's experiences don't have to be river rocks. Your trauma doesn't have to be river rocks. You can turn them into spiritual gems. You know, the first thing I saw was a gem. <laughs> that was the point. <laughs> I caught my eye. So. I really like that a lot. I like that a lot. And you're not saying here's what you ought to think and here's the meaning. No, I don't have any your, answers. Yeah. You have to That's find your own answers. Approach. You have to have your own answers. Yeah. You know, Carl Rogers said it far better than I can. He, long, quite some time ago, he said, the only knowledge worth having is self-appropriated. Hmm. Okay. That's the most meaningful. You went, you found it, you made it yours. Yeah, well, I, you know, I have some kids I, uh, that could test, testify to that, you know. Mm -hmm. Same as a dad, hey, you got to think about this. I do the polar opposite, and then they come back and they said, yeah, you know, that wasn't such a bad concept. But, mm -hmm. hey, you know, having gone through that struggle, then they come back with a much more fortified position about mm -hmm. that choice. So that, that's always not a bad thing, I don't think. Okay. Um, what did you learn about yourself in the promotion of, of this book? Um, what was the main struggle? The interesting thing about the book was that in and of itself, it wasn't a struggle. Putting my story on paper, understanding what it meant to me, understanding the, the spiritual lessons learned, that wasn't the issue. That was easy, relatively speaking. The hard part came when it came time to publicize. Then my director of public relations said, let's move it out there, let's bring it out into the world. And I realized that, that that caused me a sense of embarrassment. And I went to look for the embarrassment, and I discovered that under the embarrassment was shame. I was still carrying some of the shame. People would know that happened to me. And people close to me, not strangers at some other country sure. 10,000 feet. No, this is the person sitting across from me in a staff meeting. This would be my vice president of this and my director of that sitting there across from me. Did they read the book? Did they understand? Did they see the interviews that I did? And I felt very uncomfortable all of a sudden and realized I was still carrying some shame. At 64 years old, I was still carrying shame for what happened to me. That was the key lesson that I pulled out of that book for myself. Was it a concern about their reaction to what they read? 
and the fact that it's sort of a coming out of experience um, was it a, a concern that there be some judgment on on a professional level the the personal nature of it mm -hmm. lends itself to feeling dirty mm -hmm. your body is used by someone else your mm -hmm. mind is abused by someone else you feel dirty mm -hmm. so how do you get clean well my path through to cleanliness if you will was through spirituality and education and becoming the person that I felt that I could be. So to find out that there's still a little shred of that somewhere down in my left little toe, where I'm still owning his bad behavior, where I'm still taking responsibility, because that's what shame is, I'm taking responsibility for someone else. Mm -hmm. To know that I was still carrying that, still felt a little dirty, that was a shocker. Hmm. After all my work, that it was still there, and that gives me great empathy for people who are still struggling with this issue 20, 40, 30 years later. So i got a pretty obvious question. How did you stay focused on being better versus better in that mm. experience? That's a good question. It wasn't my nature to begin with. I had tremendous resilience to begin with. Mm -hmm. That makes a big difference. There were people who believed in me and told me I was good. So that by the time I could go into therapy and get help, I was ready. I had, I had a core set of values that said I'm worth it and I'm willing to sacrifice for it. I am worth sacrificing for. So I didn't put money away for retirement for a very long time. I didn't, put, I didn't go on vacations for a very long time because I was plowing money into psychotherapy to make myself whole, to make myself better equipped to face life because all the lessons you learn they're devastating. You learn you're not worth it. You learn you're not worthwhile. You learn maybe you're stupid. You learn that you don't make good judgments. All the life lessons you learn. You learn that men are dangerous or women are dangerous. Whoever, somebody's dangerous and that makes for a very uncomfortable world if you have to live in it, right? You learn these life lessons and then there's no one to help you unlearn them unless you get into therapy or someone maybe in a moment or you read a book, right? Mm -hmm. You have to unlearn all those life lessons. So somewhere along the line, I had enough, enough self-worth to be able to say, I'm worth whatever it takes. And the other thing was, and goes back to that defiance, he wasn't going to win. Right. I was adamant that he would not win. He would not destroy my life. I would have the life I wanted to have by hook or by crook, no matter what it took. And that was going to be my final, my final victory. My, my act of vengeance, if you will, was going to be my success. He never saw my success. I didn't need him to see my success. I didn't have anything to do with him after I was 21. Mm -hmm. Okay, It wasn't about nanner nanner, I got there, you didn't. No, this was for me. I won. There's nothing you can do to destroy me. And when you get through something like that and you come out on the other side, wherever the other side is, is it 20 or 30? I don't know. When you come out on the other side, I can honestly say there's nothing, nothing that can destroy me. Right. And, and it's very evident. You're, and that's how you get, you can get through life. Your much aura better. and your energy is very strong. So I like that. <laughs> so, you. you know, let's go back to your stepdad. Uh, mm -hmm. Maybe in your career, you've come across someone involved in that that you were trying to give help to. What would you say to your stepdad in your position today if you're trying to help someone like that? If I was trying to help him? Yeah. Uh, see, that's an interesting thing. People have often told me that I should have worked with perpetrators because I would truly understand the perpetrator as I understand the victim, of course. But you make a difference in the world when you work with perpetrators. And I said, no, 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 because I'd be behind bars. 
my therapy wasn't that good. Yeah, I think that for certain <laughs> okay. people that's appropriate. You know, no, yeah. I'd, I'd be behind bars. Uh, I'd be the one facing a death sentence because I don't have what it takes to separate myself sufficiently from perpetrators. Yeah. But I can do what I need to do in working with victims. I don't over-empathize, and empathy isn't always the appropriate response either. I have a set of tools and skills and compassion and congruence that I bring to every relationship. So I can work with victims and hear their horrible stories. Put me in front of a perpetrator? Yeah, game no. on. Game on. <laughs> game over, however, however that's said, yes. No, I, I can't work with perpetrators. Yeah, that's interesting. So as a therapist who seeks to help others, um, you certainly have a burden component that you have to carry. It's like the, the neuro neurosurgeon I was telling you about. He mm -hmm. sees a lot of stuff that you know, certainly is in his, in his mind and he deals mm -hmm. with on a daily basis. Um, and you're trying to untangle these really deep-seated issues, perhaps, mm -hmm. in a lot of people. Mm -hmm. How do you manage the struggle of helping people on maintaining a healthy, budding perspective? I mean, you've done so many great things in your career. How do you, like, take all this in, all this energy that, from my vantage point, would be really negative? And how do you uncork it and still have a very positive, sunny perspective as you move forward? Personal therapy. I hate to keep beating that same drum, but for the longest time, I could not be a therapist because I did over-empathize. Mm. I d hadn't worked through my own stuff. You see, when, and I tell graduate students when I'm working with them when they're doing their therapy, if it hurts you, that means you've got a little Velcro spot in there and someone else's story is glomming onto your little Velcro spot. You've got to go in and clean up that spot. Mm. That's why it hurts. Now, a compassionate human being will hurt. So what do you do with it? It's a therapy hour. I don't do my therapy on your dime. That's not reasonable. So on my own time, I can cry if it hurts. I can kick the wall if that's what I want to do. I can find a positive channel for my energy by perhaps um, writing a book or putting time and energy into some other kind of volunteer work. And I credit my girlfriends and Victorian tees with keeping that sunny attitude that you talk about, that opportunity to see that the world is a better place. But a big part of that came from my own adjustment. I had to stop seeing the world as a dangerous place, stop seeing men as threats, and seeing women as abandoners because my mother's not pure and clean in all of this. Mm -hmm. Okay, She was a sexual abuser. She was a, um, a verbal abuser. She had her own kind of violence. And then there's the abandonment of it all. Mm -hmm. And then the setup for failure. And, oh, you know, going to get married and give me a grandchild at 20, 21. The, the expectations were low. So she plays her part in all of this as well. So you have to, I had to, do my enough work, do my own work, so that I could see the world as, wow, you know, there's a lot of suffering in the world, but by and large, the world's a pretty good place. There are a lot of perpetrators in the world, but by and large, there are a lot of really good men out mm -hmm. there. Mm -hmm. And I said it in the book, I've been blessed to be loved by three incredible men who brought such healing and such wonderment into my own life. And then to have a spiritual teacher Mm -hmm. who took me under her wing, I have no complaints. It's beautiful. So here we are now, you're president of California Southern University. Mm -hmm. You initially had a reluctance, I think mm -hmm. on four separate occasions. Uh, you played hard to get. <laughs> you um, heard that story, huh? Absolutely. So why do you think that was? Why, what was the reluctance to take on this role and, and shape in a different way a lot of lives? Suppose the one-on-one, -on -one, but now you have a bigger sort of... You know, Perspective, you see. You, 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 know, <clears throat> you just keyed in on it. 
I said no four times because I had a thriving practice and I absolutely loved what I was doing and I couldn't see any reason to change my life. Not for this. And being a university president is jumping in the middle of a big cauldron of boiling water where there are plenty of sharks in there. It's a terrible job. I don't know why anyone would volunteer for it. And if you look at the number of presidents of universities that are just on revolving doors, it's, it's, there's no job security. It's a terrible, it's, it's hard, hard, hard work. So why would I do that when I have something I love? So I said no. But then I had a flip in my perspective. And I saw what you just mentioned. I could reach every person in that building if they wanted to be reached. Mm -hmm. I could make a difference in their lives and in their careers if they wanted it. I was the person who could be that facilitator. And the university itself had great potential. And if you think of it as a child or a human being, it had great potential. It just needed someone to help unleash it. And when I turned my perspective, when I saw it from that angle, then I said yes. Hmm. Tell us about California Southern University. I mean, the curriculum, is it a four-year college? Okay, Can you give us some perspective on that? Yeah, Cal Southern was formed in 1978. And it is 100% online. So back in those days, it was a correspondence school, and then our founders saw the vision of the Internet and went on the Internet, and it's been on the Internet almost since the beginning. We offer baccalaureate, masters, and doctorates. We have all the traditional schools, uh, School of uh, Behavioral Sciences, School of Nursing, School of Business, uh, School of Criminal Justice and Criminology. Um, if I have forgotten one or two, I'm sure the dean will talk to me about it tomorrow. We have all these schools, and um, our program is 100% online. Our instructors teach online. We have students all over the world, uh, in almost every country. And we are a, um, the best bargain in town, mm. because our tuition is extremely reasonable, because our founder felt that education should be available to everyone. It shouldn't be that elite few who can afford to go to school. Mm -hmm. So he made it affordable from the very beginning. That has never changed. We have an extremely low tuition. We don't do federal aid and that sort of thing, but again, there's no student debt either. So you come in, you pay as you go, you graduate on the other end with a regionally accredited degree, plus our School of Business is, um, has a programmatic accreditation. Our School of Nursing has a programmatic accreditation, and you will be well prepared to go into your career, whichever you choose. And you have alumni ostensibly all over the world. Uh, yeah. Indeed, indeed, who are constantly contacting, saying, I want to get a group started here, I want to do something here. They love their education, they love their experience, and now they want to take it worldwide, and we're happy to help them. What's the biggest challenge of the job? As the president, the biggest challenge of the job for me has been I would say balancing the needs of the university with the needs of the employees. Hmm. Okay. There are things that need to be fixed. You get in there, you fix. You roll up your sleeves, get it done. Problems that need to be solved, solve them. Bring a team together, you can make it happen. But then there's that other, how do you balance the needs of the university with the needs of the individual? And there are those who will tell you that um, they feel left out, and there will be those who will tell you that um, they've never worked at a place that took such good care of them. Right. You can't make everybody happy all the time. This is true. <laughs> this is true. So what advice would you give your 15-year-old self today? If you were to go back in time. My 15-year-old self at that point had discovered that education, she'd long before that discovered education was important, but she had a college guidance counselor 
And, and on that day, I walked into his office, and I remember saying, I want to go to college. And he said, he was so happy, he was delirious, because he'd been trying to get me to go to college, and I'd been saying, no, I don't have to go to college, you know. I said, I want to go to college, I need scholarships. And he said he would help me, and he did. So what would my 15-year-old need to know? Patience. I wanted everything, and I wanted it then, and I worked very, very hard. Um, so in terms of wisdom or, you know, important advice, I would say patience. Patience that's a tough is a commodity, though. Oh, and it's, it's not tough. the same thing as standing still. And I think maybe yeah. that's what I probably needed to learn was that being patient and standing still aren't the same thing. Right. <laughs> okay. Because you know, even as you get older, it's hard to be patient. I found. I mean, it's you still want to do more, accomplish more, make a bigger impact. Especially as you have less time to do it. Yeah, it speeds up. So that's a di that's a yeah. It just it, it's it's um, I don't know what the word I'm looking for is, but it's um, it, it's kind of an interesting dynamic. And on one hand. I think I always always tell people that balance is really the key. When people have emotional issues, it's they're out of balance at some level. Either they're abused or whatever. But um, I used to fly in, in flying a plane. If you your angle attacks too high, like I flew out of John Wayne over the ocean here, mm -hmm. if your nose gets too high for the the power of your engine, you will stall. And depending on your altitude, you could crash or you could recover. Mm -hmm. But the whole point is, the airplane always wants to be in balance. So you have good airflow and good lift, right? And so for me, it's all about balance. It's about balance perspective, about seeing things, you know, seeing both sides, right? Whether it be politics, you know, the left and right are both important because if you go too left, you need someone to pull back. If you go too right, you just need to have a, that, that balance, I think, is, is pretty helpful, mm -hmm. what I've found. So, mm -hmm. so um, I know you don't like pearls of wisdom, but you've got a lot of them. I know you're humble. Um, but if you can give the audience one or two pearls that if they took your advice, one or two things, do these things, you could totally improve your personal or professional life, what would it be? I think had anyone, many people I suppose, tried to give me guidance and advice, and you have to be ready to receive it, okay? Mm -hmm. And the other thing I learned a long time ago is that by and large, the advice people give you is advice they should probably be giving themselves, <laughs> okay? So I don't give advice, but what I would say, there are a couple of quotes that were extremely meaningful to me, and no doubt, um, made a great difference in me. Wouldn't have made a difference at 15. Wouldn't have made a difference even into my mid-20s. But by my late 20s, they would have made a big difference. And one was um, the Lubavitcher Rebbe said, and I've said this to many a patient, I even had to put on some cards, it says, you are not broken, nor do you need to be fixed. You simply need to be uncovered and allowed to shine. Mm. That's made, awesome. Yeah. He was a very wise man. And the other is Viktor Frankl, who said, suffering ceases to be suffering when it has meaning. And he was in Auschwitz. He had a story. He knows, he knows suffering. Yes. Yeah, that's powerful. Thank you for that. Who's that person who's had the most influence in your life? I would say my grandmother. Because if you're going to talk about influence, something that has carried me for an a lifetime was something my grandmother taught me. I remember more than once I would say, Grandma, can we do this? Or can we maybe go to the movie? Or can we do this? She was the one source of unconditional love in my life. Mm. And she was the place that I could go to for safety. But she wasn't around much because we lived on the West Coast. She lived on the East Coast. But I remember as young as five and six and seven saying, Grandma, can we do this? Or Grandma, can we do that? And my grandmother would say to me, 
Let me think about it. You know, Grandmama doesn't make a promise unless she's going to keep it. Mm. So let me think about it, and then I'll decide whether or not I can keep that promise. And the next day she would come back and say, yes, Grandmama will make that promise. She taught me the meaning of commitment and promise. Mm. So she's thoughtful, deliberate, and followed through, and she meant what she said. Always. That's kind of uncommon in this world, right? And I have carried that with me. My, I believe the people at the university know that if I say something, I mean it, and I will follow through on it, no matter what it takes. Um, my friends know that, and certainly um, anyone who spends any amount of time with me will figure out that I, I mean what I say, and I say what I mean, and I follow through. What a beautiful legacy from a strong woman. You know, people want to erect buildings and put their names on them. And what you just said is a legacy that will just echo into eternity. I mean, that's so powerful. And you've touched so many lives with that, with that philosophy, and that's probably why you're at where you're at. You know, I think, I think follow-up and follow-through is uh, sorely missing, especially with the current generations of youth. That's <laughs> what I found. In integrity seems to be lacking. Yes, absolutely. Is there anything you want to share with the audience that we haven't covered? Hmm. And I think you've done quite a thorough job of asking questions. Okay. I, I'm very pleased and happy with this interview. Thank you. Super. So where can they find this book? Is it on Amazon? Is it It is on Audible, Amazon. I think? Um, uh, yeah, it has all its various um, iterations. Um, soft cover, hard cover, um, I don't know. But what are all the rest of them? Um, digital and all yeah. that. Exactly right. It's all there. You cover the so basis. Amazon.com. Yeah. Fantastic. Awesome. Well, Gwen, thanks so much for coming on. Your story is inspiring and impacted me. I feel like I was part of the audience because it's just like, it's like a wow moment. Like, a, it's powerful. So what you become as a woman, and I, I, love the, I love strong women on this show because we need more of that. And um, your story is very inspiring. So thanks for sharing it with the audience in such a transparent way. My pleasure, truly. That's it from Beyond. Um, you can find us on, at Beyond Ben Bobo on social media and, of course, on our website, uh, beyondbenbobo.com. Until next time, remember... Becoming is better than being. Thanks.